4: Men and women serving in Germany aren't allowed to even be ordinarily polite with Germans. Germans are meant to understand that they are beyond the moral pale by the fact that the American occupiers won't shake hands with them, won't exchange any kind of courtesies with them at all. That was Susan elker discussing the US occupations
3: after the Second World War.
5: I think, for better or worse, Raleigh will always be associated with the golden age of the British bicycle.
3: And that was Stephen Humphreys, reflecting on the iconic Raleigh bicycle.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. we the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to our second podcast of March 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Susan El Carruthers a professor of history at Rutgers University, Newark. Susan is the author of The Good Occupation, which explores the experiences of American troops as occupiers in countries such as Germany and Japan following the Second World War. It's a little-known story, and one that is far less straightforward than many of us might imagine. I caught up with Susan a little while back to find out more. The book's entitled The Good Occupation, and... Many people nowadays do see the post-war occupations of Japan and Germany as having been fairly successful. But how mm. much for you is that actually something of a myth?
4: Well, the, the title of the book is intended to to register as an ironic one, and and that's signalled by the subtitle of the book, which um, suggests that there were perils of, of peace which many soldiers certainly encountered. So, I, I was also obviously hearkening back to Studs Terkel's book, The Good War, in which although over time, of course, we've come to think of the good war as just being undisputably morally virtuous. In fact, at the time, m- many people who, both in Britain and in the United States, were were much more unclear about what the the war was really all about. So I, I wanted that the title to to sort of help readers think about the, the good occupation as something that, like the good war, was a, a product of of retrospective construction as much as anything else.
3: Do you believe that this was an example of a good occupation or do you think it's far more flawed than people give it credit for?
4: The occupations in, in practice were much more sort of murky and questionable in all sorts of ways than they've come to be remembered in, in hindsight and that's really, you know, the, the big arc of the book is is aimed at, at helping readers understand that how the men and women who were involved in the occupying armies understood what it was they were they were up to was, was really a lot more complicated and, and nuanced and often much darker than how public memory has, has, has reconstructed those chapters of history. So, I mean, yes, it's certainly true that Germany and Japan over time did indeed become prosperous and Pacific allies of the United States and other Western powers. But on a day-to-day basis in the, the months and years immediately following the war, uh, things were, were really much more, more complicated.
3: And how much of a plan was there as to how the occupation should have been conducted?
4: Well, there there was a good deal of of planning. Um, So, in fact, the American government and and military had started to think about post-war before the United States had even formally entered the war in, in, in December of 1941. So there was a great deal of, of deliberation that, that went into thinking about what the world would look like and how Germany and Japan and other access territories, places occupied by the Axis powers, what would happen to them in the aftermath of war. But no matter how much planning one does in in wartime for for the aftermath of war, I think it was really very difficult to to devise flawless blueprints for for what would actually transpire at the end of the war. And this was certainly something that emerged very clearly from the letters and diaries that I I, I read of occupation soldiers, that, that nobody seemed to feel they had been well prepared for the job that they undertook, in part because some very big aspects of policy remained undecided. So, at the end of of the war the and vj day the united states government still hadn't decided how how long the occupations of germany and japan would would last and of course that's a huge question what the duration of of these projects will be but also an, another huge element of of indeterminacy was that that no one of course had been able to anticipate quite how ruined many places in post-war Europe and, and Asia would be. So it was one thing for trainee occupation officers to study municipal blueprints of, you know, what did the sewage system look like in Mannheim, Germany, or you know, what, what did Tokyo's banking system look like? Um, but of course, you know, what pre-war conditions had looked like were not really a very adequate guide to what those thoroughly decimated places would look like um, when the war ended.
3: The soldiers who are occupying Germany and Japan, what kind of mindset did they have? Because I mean, they had actually recently been fighting people of these nationalities. So was it quite difficult for them to make the adjustment to occupiers?
4: I think in many cases, it, it was very difficult. And and one of the first things I'd say in response to that question is, is to bear in mind that only a really a handful of, of officers had been trained or enlisted men had been trained specifically as occupation troops. So, um, during the war, the US military establishment did set up a number of training schools for, for military government personnel. Uh, but but the vast majority of, of men and a smaller number of women who were in the, the women's army corps arrived at, at their destinations as, as the war was in its terminal phases or, or shortly after peace had been declared and and they really had no training for this mission whatsoever and and the great majority of them had no desire to serve a moment longer than necessary so of course many combat troops of course are, uh, are animated by the idea that as, as soon as the enemy has surrendered they get to go home and and for most of them not surprisingly victory was really synonymous with with going home and and when that doesn't happen there was really a catastrophic collapse of morale in in the US military. I mean this was an absolutely unmistakable disintegration of morale in the weeks and months following the end of the war. And and, and so I mean that's one contributory factor to, to the mindset that that occupation troops bring to bear is just their their huge desire to be elsewhere and to be going home and lack of understanding about why um, men who'd served in combat roles really ought to be doing this this sort of post-war um, peace guarding work at all. And then the other element, as you suggest, is is how do you very rapidly, almost overnight perhaps, reorientate your mentality so that you're not any longer perhaps looking at the Germans and Japanese or the Italians as your enemies, but but rather as people that you are there to watch over mindfully to make sure that they don't Become enemies once again, but 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 there are also people that you're having to to live with, in some cases in in very great proximity, and the the army I think also um, offered rather difficult guidelines. Certainly in Germany, they, Eisenhower issues a ban on fraternization in April of 1945, and and so. Uh, Men and women serving in Germany aren't allowed to even be um, ordinarily polite with Germans. Germans are meant to understand that they are beyond the moral pale by the fact that the American occupiers won't shake hands with them, won't exchange any kind of courtesies with them at all. Um, But the ban is very widely disregarded by American troops in in every conceivable way. So, there's a a lot of complexity and, and, and sort of contradictions in the mix.
3: Were there then many examples of abuses of um, German, Japanese, Italian civilians by these American service people, especially as they had previously been fighting them?
4: Yes, there were a lot of cases of of abuses of, of a range of, of different kinds. Um, I mean, of course, we first need to define what what we're talking about if we're invoking a notion of of abuse. but at, at the perhaps softest end of the scale, of, if you like, um looting certainly was was very, very commonplace wherever american soldiers went they They were very yeah, rapacious collectors of of what they preferred to think of as souvenirs, but which to other eyes, might be better described as 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 loot. and so they tended to engage in. Theft, they certainly were very avid collectors of Nazi memorabilia in, in Germany or things um, that, that seemed particularly expressive of Japanese imperial culture, samurai swords and so on. Um, but they also wanted things like cameras or binoculars every conceivable kind of luxury item that was to be found in, in Germany, more so than than in Japan. They were really voracious collectors of things. And in some cases, they, they applied a kind of situation ethics to this acquisitiveness, to think, well, really, their enemies owed it to them to, to part with these kinds of items, whether they were stripped from, from soldiers on the battlefield or civilians whose houses American troops might be occupying. So, I mean, Theft and acquisition work was certainly a, a huge part of, of the story. And GIs termed for themselves the sort of punning, sobriquet the Lutwaffe in Germany to, to sort of playfully invoke um, the, the notion that they were rather good at acquiring German stuff. And, and, and they certainly were. Um, but, but then, of course, perhaps more troublingly, American occupation soldiers, like occupation soldiers, it should be said, of, of every nationality engaged in, in a good deal of, of, of sexual violence, um, from harassing behaviour at one end of the spectrum to, to violent rape at the other. And that's perhaps uh, one of the most troubling aspects of, of occupation behaviour.
3: On the other hand, were there also examples of American soldiers forming positive relationships, friendships, um, even, you know, marriages, say, with um, occupied people?
4: Yes, definitely. So I, I think one shouldn't paint the picture in entirely dark terms um, because some some American soldiers, although they weren't meant to be, uh, after VE Day, they weren't meant to be um, occupying German homes alongside German families, uh, in many cases they did, and one thing I found rather surprising was how much latitude soldiers enjoyed to really um, strike strike out on their own and and create their own conditions of living. Suddenly, in the very fluid period, just as the war is ending and and the new sort of phase of military government is is beginning, and often living side by side with were predominantly women because of course many German men were were off at war including teenage boys by the end of the war in, in 1945. Many friendships develop and some of them were clearly rather transactional relationships where German women appreciated that their situations were, were going to be more comfortable if they befriended or indeed slept with American soldiers. But I think it would be wrong to suggest that, that all of these relationships in in the, the many places that Americans occupied were exclusively driven by these sort of transactional impulses. There there were certainly cases I I encountered of of Americans forming genuine friendships and becoming very affectionate towards the women, the children, um, others that they encountered. And, And this was also true in Japan and perhaps rather more surprising in Japan, given that the Japanese enemy had been racialized in much more extreme ways. So a lot of historians, including perhaps most prominently John Dower, have written about the race war character of of conflict in the Pacific. And Americans at war in that theater certainly often understood the Japanese to be almost a different species, Uh, not simply a different race, but more animal than human, perhaps at at its most extreme. And I think many of them went into Japan expecting to find this sort of, um, you know, ferocious ape man kind of being. And they, they didn't really know what kind of treatment they might receive, and were often stunned by how courteous, how pleasant, how polite the Japanese were. Now, American soldiers lived less frequently in Japanese homes, but a number of the letters and correspondences that I looked at showed that very quickly after arriving, American men were were really very taken with with the Japanese and, and quickly absolutely changed U-turn in, in their ideas about the Japanese within a space of, of just a few weeks in some cases.
3: On the other side, how did the occupied peoples respond to their American occupiers?
4: Well, I think that that's probably something that's a little bit harder for me to speak to with the same sort of level of, of nuance, because my book is, is really dedicated to exploring how Americans understood themselves in, in the role of, of an occupation soldier. And so all of, of the first hand source materials I looked at were, were produced by, by Americans rather than by the people that they were occupying. Um, but 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 certainly of course, you know, albeit through American eyes, I, I got some sense of of how the people that they were interacting with responded. Um, and I think perhaps one of the most interesting cases to talk about which we haven't mentioned so far is is South Korea which which to me is one of the most fascinating of the post-war occupations, in part because Americans often forget that their troops occupied South Korea for, for three years from September of 1945 and until 1948. And what makes Korea particularly interesting is that Korea had been a Japanese colony um, from the early part of the 20th century until Korea was liberated in, in part by Red Army troops in the north and U.S. forces in the south. And, and and entirely arbitrarily, the Americans and Soviets just decide they're going to draw a line across the middle of the Korean Peninsula and, and occupy it with the, the Soviets in the north and the Americans in the South. But why should Korea have been occupied? This was a Japanese colony that had been the unwelcome victim of Japanese imperial rule. The Koreans expected that at the end of the war, they would be liberated in the same way that the French who had been occupied or other European countries that had been occupied by By the German Wehrmacht, would be liberated and and, and left to rule themselves again. And instead, Korea, I think, actually is is the victim of the most punitive occupation of of any of the American occupations after World War II. And this is a curious kind of anomaly that a a country that was the victim of of Japanese imperial aggression and a very harsh colonial regime was not allowed the right to self-determination and, in fact, was, was occupied and split in half. And as we know, that that division, unlike the division of Germany, persists to this day. So it was particularly interesting to me to think about, you know, how did Americans understand what they were doing occupying this place, which perhaps really ought to have been and expected to be liberated and left to to govern itself. And in Korea, I found, you know, not only were American young boys rather baffled by what they were doing there, but but suddenly they encountered uh, mounting hostility from the Koreans because the Koreans wanted their own government. And they did not regard the US occupation regime to be legitimate in the way that Germans and Japanese understood that they had been thoroughly defeated in war. So, they were more or less accepting of, of the occupation. I mean, not without some, some tensions, of course, but they did not challenge the essential post-war status quo. And, and that was not at all the case in, in Korea. And so, there was a, a lot of, of sort of escalating animosity and political agitation against the US occupation of, of Korea. And and that that site is is a really intriguing one.
3: What impact did the evolving Cold War have on the shape of the occupations?
4: I think the deterioration of relations with the Soviet Union is is a really sort of c- critical piece of of how occupation policy evolves. Because of course, uh, one thing that, that Americans are, are perhaps to to overlook somewhat, because the Cold War lasted so long and it was so intense, was was that the Red Army was key American ally during the war. Uh, but very quickly, I, I think, although, I mean, certainly many of the letters and diaries I read express a, an amount of, of sort of amity and, and friendship towards individual Russian and, and Soviet personnel that Americans in, encounter in, in Germany and, and elsewhere, it quickly becomes the case that, especially in places which are jointly occupied between various various powers, so Germany in, in particular, Korea is another case, um, the occupation of Japan was a predominantly American venture, and, and and they tried very hard to keep the Soviets out of the occupation of Japan. But wherever Americans and, and Soviet personnel interact on a daily basis, tension quickly creeps in. And it creeps in over large issues of policy. It, it creeps in over questions about which politicians in these countries can be trusted, who is sort of sufficiently anti-fascist to become perhaps a, a collaborator in, in the new political dispensations. But one other a, a huge area of tension is over the question of, of repatriation, bearing in mind that when the war ends in Europe, there are millions of Soviets in Western Europe, not just military personnel, but millions of, of forced laborers who'd been brought to Germany and Eastern Europe by by the, the Nazi regime. And and quite a large number of, of those Soviet citizens don't want to return to the USSR at the end of the war. And that becomes a, a huge contentious issue over which the Americans and, and the Soviets increasingly fall out. And of course, to the Soviets, you know, a, a very uh, emotional issue, whether Soviet citizens are going to be allowed to determine their own fates or, or whether they will forcibly be sent back with American troops actually you know, at gunpoint if necessary, uh, pushing Soviet citizens into boxcars to... To head back east. So, there are a lot of of different vectors of of conflict. And and for all of these reasons, relations between the Americans and the Soviets really deteriorate very markedly. And that that process is happening within weeks, literally, of of the end of the war. So, although many historians date the beginning of the Cold War, perhaps to 1948, we can certainly see on the ground that there is escalating tension animosity and a day-to-day inability to get along and resolve these disputes from from the latter part of 1945
3: onwards do you see many similarities between the occupations after the Second World War and more recent American occupations such as Vietnam Afghanistan and Iraq
4: one of the things that, that really inspired me to write the book in the first place was the fact that the Bush administration and, and architects of Operation Iraqi Freedom so-called were were constantly in the six months leading up to the invasion of the Iraq, invoking the post-war occupations of Germany and Japan to, to reassure skeptics that it would be relatively easy to debothify Iraq and to remodel that, that country as a sort of a lodestone of, of, of democratic values in, in the Middle East. Now, like many historians, I was convinced in late 2002 and early 2003 that the analogy simply didn't hold water. Germany and Japan in 1945 had been thoroughly, thoroughly beaten. These were devastated, exhausted countries, and of course, you know, that they, they had they had started the wars that they lost, and the populations of those countries knew themselves to be beaten. And even if they didn't necessarily welcome the occupiers with, with open arms, they, they had no choice but to accept the new Pax Americana. And, and they mostly did so with, with varying degrees of, of quiescence. But there was very little armed resistance. The Americans expected that the Germans would resist, and they imagined that there were even going to be these sort of guerrilla werewolf units, so-called of of sort of fanatical Nazis holding out in the Bavarian Alps and so on, who were going to sabotage the occupation regimes. And and that really just didn't happen. Now, of course, if you in, invade a country in a war of, of choice, then it seems to me very obviously, you you can expect there to be resistance, and of course there was huge resistance in Iraq, and Iraq remains in a state of of tremendous political turmoil. So, I I think in in all sorts of ways, the occupation of Iraq and the American presence in Afghanistan um, don't resemble the occupations of Germany and Japan that they were meant by the by the Bush administration to, to replicate very precisely. And, and and I think it was clear that that was never going to happen. That was sort of political fantasy and, and legitimation. I, I mean, that said, of course, you could say that structurally speaking, anywhere that foreign troops occupy, there are likely to be certain uh, certain conditions that, that, that come about as a fact of, of this sort of alien presence. So, whether it's sort of sexual violence and, and, and the harassment and, and rape of women, that, that tends to happen wherever there's occupation. Um, and of course, where the occupation is more unwelcome and unexpected and, and people don't thoroughly understand themselves to be beaten after a war, then there is indeed likely to be resistance and, and armed resistance as, as we've seen.
3: Having researched this period now and read the things that you've read, if you'd been in charge of American policy in 1945, what do you think you'd have done differently in the occupation of these countries?
4: Well, I I think I would... Probably have pushed um, FDR or or Truman to have a a clearer sense of uh, what it was exactly that the occupations were intended to accomplish and, and how long they were going to last. I think I would probably have encouraged a smaller military presence for those occupations, and I would have urged the administration to more quickly have built up. Institutions like UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Agency, so that the cast of the occupations was was much more humanitarian in nature and, and was being undertaken more by civilians. Because it seems to me that probably to the extent that, that occupation is a, a necessary um, coda to, to war, to, to my way of thinking at least, the, the character of that occupation is is sort of better handled if and better construed as a, a sort of mission to help occupied populations uh, reconstruct their own societies and, and to be provided with the wherewithal to, to achieve a, a reasonable, dignified standard of, of living in the aftermath of, of catastrophe. I, I think this sort of built-in contradiction to democratizing occupations, which are being carried out by military institutions, which are fundamentally undemocratic in, in, in their institutional remit. And of course, democratization at gunpoint is a, a very oxymoronic kind of conceit. And and no one in Germany or Japan was unaware of the fact that, that being democratized by people who enjoyed an, a monopoly on armed force is its own very curious situation. And I think that probably German and Japan polities would would have looked not dissimilar to, to how they looked after the war if, if they had been left more to their own devices to, to figure out those those polities and, and perhaps might have looked more liberal and more progressive certainly in Japan if your very anti-communist uh, regimes and MacArthur was notoriously anti-communist hadn't Prescribe the the shape of of those regimes quite as as sort of fervently and in quite such right-wing ways as as they did. So that's a a lot of prescriptions, which of course I'm suggesting, and of course many of them couldn't possibly perhaps have have been realized in in the circumstances that that existed at the time, but you're asking me to engage in a kind of counterfactual wish list exercise, so I've given you a few pointers there. That was Professor Susan L. Carruthers.
3: The Good Occupation, American Soldiers and the Hazards of Peace, is out now in the US and the UK, published by Harvard University Press. And if you or a relative participated in one of those occupations and you'd like to help Professor Carruthers with her research, then you can get in touch with her via her website, susanlcarruthers.com. Next Wednesday, the 15th of March, BBC4 will broadcast a new documentary entitled Pedaling Dreams, which charts the story of British cycling through the experiences of the iconic manufacturer Raleigh. The producer of the series is Steve Humphreys, and he paid a visit to our studio recently to share his thoughts about the history of the brand. Why have you decided to tell the story of Raleigh for this documentary?
5: Well, I wanted to tell the story of Raleigh because it's a story that's really never been told before. I think it's an extraordinary and dramatic story of how, from very humble beginnings, Raleigh became the biggest bicycle manufacturer in the world, which was an amazing achievement. And up to the 60s and 70s, Raleigh was really a world leader. It was not only the leading brand in Britain, but it was selling bikes to almost every country in the world.
3: How did the company come about and why do you think it was so successful?
5: I think Rally was so successful because of the vision and incredible entrepreneurial flair of its founder, Frank Bowden. Frank was a very wealthy businessman who made his fortune in the Far East, but he suffered from poor health. And he was at death's door until one day, on the advice of his doctor, he took up cycling in the 1880s. And the health benefits of cycling really helped save his life. So this was a gift he wanted to share with the world. He wanted to make the world a better place through cycling. But as an entrepreneur, uh, he also wanted to make a tidy profit. So in the 1890s, he bought up a small bicycle company in Raleigh Road, Nottingham, and he began to expand the business. And Frank Bowden and Raleigh really pioneered the modern all-steel safety bicycle with three-speed sturmey Archer gears, which became the template of the sit-up-and-beg traditional bicycle for many years. Uh, these bikes were quite revolutionary at the time, and Raleigh were so confident about their durability, they offered them with a lifetime guarantee. And that was really their unique selling point in the early days, the lifetime guarantee.
3: And when would you say was the golden age of cycling? Well, I think
5: the real golden age of cycling was in the first half of the 20th century, which was an age before mass car ownership. Around this time, the bike came to be seen as an essential form of transport to commute to work and back. And This was a time when there was a new vogue for fresh air and exercise and increasing leisure time. So many people used the bike to go off to the countryside or to the coast. They'd go by themselves or they'd go with their family or some would go with their local cycling club because cycling clubs were hugely popular at the time. And with the emancipation of women, women also began to use bikes more and more. And at this time, there was a boom in children's bikes as well and a bike became the most popular children's birthday or Christmas present. These bikes would generally be new for the better-off middle classes but second or third-hand for the working classes.
3: In your view, how do you think Rally managed to sell their bikes so successfully?
5: Well, I think from the beginning, Rally understood the value of marketing. They pioneered advertising films and beautiful colour posters to sell their bikes. And we've unearthed some of these advertising films from the rally archives for the programme, which haven't been seen before. And one of the most distinctive things about them is how deserted the roads were and the absence of cars in the early 20th century. But rally discovered that actually the very best marketing tool of all was to sign up Cycle Racing Champions. Cycle racing was very popular and attracted big crowds from the 1890s onwards. And Rally's biggest ever star was Reg Harris. Reg used to be as big as Sterling Moss or Stanley Matthews. He won many championship titles for Rally in the 40s and 50s. He helped launch the slogan, Reg Rides a Rally. And it's incredible looking back that more than a million Rally Lenten sports bikes were sold using Reg's name.
3: Many of our listeners may know the film Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the Albert Finney film, which showed a rally factory. How did that connection come about?
5: Well, the the film Saturday Night and Sunday Morning was based on a book of the same name written by ex-rally worker Alan Sillitoe. And it tells the story of an angry and rebellious young worker, Arthur Seaton, who really hates the work on the bicycle assembly line in Nottingham. He just does it for the money and he breaks every rule of respectable society when he gets out of what feels like a prison for him. The film is particularly interesting because it expresses a new atmosphere amongst rally workers. The company, which was really a family dynasty passed down from Frank Bowden to his son Harold, used to be very paternalistic. They looked after their workers really well and they gave them free medical facilities and they took them off for free days in Blackpool every year. But by the early 60s, it had become part of a huge conglomerate, the Tube Investment Group. It was becoming an increasingly impersonal and alienating place to work.
3: So in the 1960s, around this time we're talking about actually, bicycle design changed completely from the sit-up and beg bikes to these drop-handle racing bikes. Um, Why did that happen?
5: Uh, That happened because there had been a slump in the bicycle market in the 60s because of the rise of mass car ownership. By the 60s, most people commuted to work by car, not by bike. The new kind of bike that became fashionable was the small wheeled bike. It was often foldable. It was designed for modern city living. So it could be put in the boot of a car or it could be taken easily by train.
3: And then the next decade, we've come to the 70s, and there it was really the Chopper that was the big Rally success story. Why was that? Well, the Chopper was first produced
5: in 1970, and it was Rally's most iconic bike. Uh, It was an instant hit with children and teenagers. They really loved its revolutionary high handlebars, and they loved its gear stick and its long seat. Chopper actually made them feel like they were riding a motorbike, so it made them feel very cool and grown up. Uh, But it was very easy to tip up because most of its weight was at the back, so there were lots of painful accidents. Some parents became very worried, and a few wouldn't let their boys have them as they thought they were too dangerous.
3: So the next big development for cycling was the mountain bike boom. To what extent was Rally part of that?
5: Well, mountain bikes started on the dirt tracks in California in the early 70s, but the craze soon came to Britain. And the craze helps create a sport which was called bicycle motocross, or BMX for short. The BMX craze really swept across Britain very quickly, but Rally were a bit slow to pick up on the new trend. Uh, but they eventually started producing the lightweight bikes they needed to. and in in they launched the Rally Burner. The Burner made big sales to boys and young men, and we tell the fantastic story in our programme of how they signed up the great national star of this sport, Essex boy Andy Ruffle. He now lives in Las Vegas, but we managed to track him down and he tells some of his amazing story. He tells the story of how his talent as a BMX rider helped sell so many burners. It was partly down to him that Raleigh went on to sell over three million mountain bikes. So
3: and what led to
5: Raleigh's decline and fall? Uh, One of the big reasons for Raleigh's decline, especially on the international market, was the increase in competition from other countries, especially countries in the Far East, because they could produce good quality bikes much more cheaply and efficiently than Raleigh, who were becoming burdened by high labour costs they bought up most of the competition in Britain. Uh, over the years, they bought big companies and big brands like BSA, like Triumph and like Hercules. They were all part of Rally by the 60s. And as a result, it became too big and too cumbersome for its own good. And there was also a new demand as well for more specialist and lightweight bikes that Rally was a bit slow to pick up on. So it started to lose its control of the market.
3: And what's the situation with the company nowadays?
5: Uh, Well, in some ways... I think it's quite sad what has happened to Raleigh. The old Raleigh factory in Nottingham was closed down in 1999 and its remaining workers were laid off. And There's one very moving story in the programme. We film with ex-Raleigh worker Clive Hodgson who spent most of his working life there. He was a teddy boy who loved rock and roll music and even though the work was quite boring he loved it because he'd get all the workers around him in the factory singing along to old rock and roll songs while they worked and this is something that was filmed at the time and that we use in the programme it's quite an extraordinary scene so it's very funny but also very sad as at the end of the programme Clive talks about how much he misses working at the rally factory so it was the end of the line really for the mass rally workforce and from then onwards uh, most of its bikes were made overseas and today Rally is owned in fact by a Dutch company called Axel. The Rally brand isn't as popular as it once was, but lots of rally bikes are still sold. And as the popularity of cycling increases today, there is optimism for the future in the company.
3: How do you think we should remember Rally's or certainly Raleigh's golden age?
5: I think whatever the future holds for Raleigh, I think for many people, Raleigh will always conjure up images from the past. I think it will conjure up images of uh, happy memories of learning to ride your first bike, images of commuting to work and images of days out in the British countryside. I think for better or worse, Raleigh will always be associated with the golden age of the British bicycle.
3: That was Steve Humphreys. Peddling Dreams, The Rally Story, airs next Wednesday, the 15th of March, at 9pm on BBC4. And you can read a piece by Steve on Rally, in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which will be published later this month. In the meantime, our March issue is currently on sale. This month we have articles on Victorian poverty, the Roman Praetorian Guard, Elizabeth I's Irish nemesis, and plenty more you can get hold of our March issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United Kingdom, whereby you can get 13 issues for the price of eight. To find out more details and take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com and now it's time for the latest history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
6: The Royal Conservatoire of Scotland believes it has identified the first female professor of a higher education institution in the UK. Emma Ritter Bondi became a professor of piano in 1892 at the Glasgow Anathaeum School of Music, now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Edith Morley is often thought to have been the first female to be awarded the title of Professor in a British university when she was appointed Professor of English Language at University College Reading, now the University of Reading, in 1908. However, Rita Bondi's appointment was 16 years earlier. Stuart Harris Logan, Archives Officer at the Conservatoire explained that while not much is known about Rita Bondi's time at the school, she was likely to have been actively recruited around the time that the Glasgow Anathaeum was employing many talented musicians from around Europe. He told BBC Scotland, We could not be put on par with universities as we did not issue degrees, but now we know we were a college at that time. That's why we can compare ourselves to another college in 1908 who had appointed a female professor. He added... As the only woman to hold such a post in an environment which was almost entirely male-dominated, it put Emma at the forefront of arts education in Scotland and beyond. In other news, the Jane Austen's House Museum is using fragments of faulty wallpaper found in the author's former home in Hampshire to reinterpret the property. Austen spent the last eight years of her life in the Chawton Cottage, from 1809 until 1817. To mark the bicentenary of the author's death, the museum is redecorating the house to match how it would have been when Austen lived there, and the team has found that some of the paper seems to have been hung upside down. Curator Mary Guyot told the BBC how the hand-printed motifs on the wallpaper in the Austen family house bore mistakes. There was a motif they could not make sense of, and after some puzzling they realised there was a manufacturing fault in this paper. There's a central motif that looks a bit like a spider. That was meant to have a rosebud there. The team at the museum now believes that the wallpaper may have been, quote, seconds, bought cheaply by the Austin family, who were not rich. At the time, wallpaper was an expensive luxury and would have been heavily taxed. Meanwhile, the remains of two British soldiers, thought to have been killed in a Second World War commando assault, have been found near Salerno in Italy. The two soldiers are believed to have been part of a unit led by the 6th Duke of Wellington, Captain Henry Valerian Georgie Wellesley, who was the great-great-grandson of Arthur Wellesley, the 1st Duke of Wellington. The remains were situated near a German stronghold which was nicknamed Pimple Hill by Allied forces. The soldiers may have been part of the unit which attempted to take the hill, The human bones were found by members of Salerno 1943, a group which searches for the remains of German and Allied soldiers who died in the campaign. In a statement, the amateur historian said, In the attempt to take the position, the British commandos, led by the Duke of Wellington, lost many men during several assaults. A spokesman for the Ministry of Defence told the Telegraph that DNA testing could be used to identify the soldiers and the unit they were fighting with.
3: OK, well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about a 1960s environmental disaster.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries, and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.